From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It's been more than a century since an American president served two non-consecutive terms in office, or even tried to do so. Martin Van Buren tried and failed in the 1840s. Millard Fillmore also came up short a decade after that. Ulysses Grant gave it a shot in 1880, and Teddy Roosevelt tried it in 1912. But only Grover Cleveland was able to pull off a comeback after losing a bid for re-election. After he lost to Benjamin Harrison in 1888, he ran again in 1892 and returned to the White House. Now, Donald Trump wants to stage a similar comeback. And despite the fact that his last days in office were marred by an insurrection in the U.S. Capitol, and he's under investigation for illegally stashing highly classified documents in his Florida home after his presidency, there are plenty of those who believe that he could indeed do it. But here's one of the questions we're going to get to today. Why? Why wouldn't Trump just kick back, relax, and and enjoy being a former president? Well, part of the answer to that question lies in the way that Donald Trump sees American exceptionalism. The idea that the United States is inherently different from other nations and, in the views of most exceptionalists, better than other nations. In their new book, the scholars Jason Gilmore and Charles Rowling have argued that Trump's view of the United States as an exceptional nation hinges on an idea that is fairly unique in American history. In his words and actions, he's painted a picture of a nation that can only be exceptional if he is in charge of it. The book is called Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism, And Jason Gilmore is here to talk about it today. Gilmore is an associate professor of communication studies at Utah State University, and he's focused much of his work over the past decade on the idea of American exceptionalism. Jason Gilmore, welcome. Thanks for having me. Jason, the idea of the United States as as an exceptional nation, this goes back a few hundred years. And in this book, you noted that it was really a goal of colonists and revolutionaries. So so even before Americans kind of widely considered their nation to be exceptional, they really believed it could be. Yeah, indeed. It, uh, it's an idea that, that's kind of born out of coming to this new this new nation, right? This new land and bringing something special, right? So it's, it's already embedded in, in the settlers' minds that they're, they're going to create something that's going to help, I'd say, save the world from itself, right? Something that's escaping all the, the trappings of the past um, and uh, creating something unique and something special. And so this this idea that kind of starts in a religious connotation that these new colonies are going to show what is moral to the rest of the world then gets enveloped into the notion of America when when the country itself becomes founded and it's lived a long life in in uh, in our politics ever since. And you said, you know, you said the word saved save the world from itself and that that might be why this idea really caught fire around World War II 
and and you know i would have guessed that it was at its zenith in american politics when ronald reagan came around in the 1980s but there's a really interesting chart in your book where you look at the percent of presidential speeches that invoke american exceptionalism and between the presidencies of harry truman to world war ii through barack obama that's that's 12 presidents in all it's obama who sets a record for not just bringing up this idea in his speeches in more than 80% of his speeches, but also for the number of times he invokes American exceptionalism. That that surprised me. Did it surprise you? Um, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been doing this work kind of incrementally. Um, so in fact, strangely enough, it, I mean, it, the amount surprised me, but the fact that he had, had kind of taken on this notion uh, more so than his predecessors didn't because it was, it was kind of part of his identity from, from early on. If you remember his, his speech at the 2004 um, Democratic National Convention where he gives the keynote um, he says, um, and this is part of his his story throughout his campaigning. He says, uh, "On no, uh, in no country on earth is my story even possible." Right. So he's an exceptionalist from from day one. Um, but uh, it, that is compounded with the fact that um, he's attacked by Republicans as uh, to begin with as not being patriotic. Right. They they call him out for not having a, a flag pin on his lapel. They say he's not patriotic in his in his uh, campaign. He has to give a patriotism speech where he claims I am patriotic. This is ridiculous that you would challenge this. But the Republicans kind of continued throughout his presidency um, to attack him on this notion. And in his second term, really went after not just his patriotism, but his belief in American exceptionalism specifically. Right? They 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 wrote books getting getting ready for the 2016 election about American exceptionalism. Mitt Romney wrote his book about American exceptionalism because they really thought they had something on Barack Obama. Um, that he into, wasn't an exceptionalist. That he wasn't, which was absolutely fascinating because that was his identity. And so what you see, I think, is a, a mixture of the fact that he's at his core an exceptionalist with the fact that he's he's – He's also trying to to you know battle off all of these um, these challenges to his belief in it that he really just decides to kind of you know settle in and wax philosophical at every turn about what his vision of American exceptionalism actually is. So exceptionalism turns into this qualifying idea, and that really make something that happened when Donald Trump starts indicating that he's going to make a serious run for the presidency. It, ma- it makes it kind of surprising because he actually says on a number of occasions and in a number of ways that the United States isn't exceptional. In fact, there's actually a, a, a speech that he gives at a Tea Party event, you know, two or three weeks before he um launches his presidency. This is Trump. Um, you know, a couple of weeks before the, the descent down the ele- uh, escalator, um, where they ask him about American exceptionalism. And he quickly says, I don't like the term. I don't like it. I've never liked it. I've heard Obama talk about it all the time. And I just don't like it. And uh, this is a shock. 
Um, but you can see the strategy in, in the book, we call it the exceptional me strategy. You can see the strategy at work in this speech, right? He says, they're eating our lunch. The, you know, the United States is not what it used to be. Um, but if you give me a chance, I can make it exceptional again. As a scholar who has studied exceptionalism, this notion of exceptionalism, you hear Trump say, I alone can fix things. Do you remember what was going through your head? Did, did you recognize that this idea was being substantially shifted at that point? The notion of American exceptionalism? Yeah. Well, the notion, I, I, I suppose, did, did you, when, when you hear Trump, when you hear the speech, I, I alone can fix things, did you think, ah, something, something interesting is happening right now? <laughs> Yeah. So the interesting thing is, is, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read every uh, presidential speech um, since uh, Washington, you know, I'm, I'm, I've attuned my <laughs> You've brain. You've got to get more hobbies, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've, uh, but uh, you know, I've attuned and I've looked for the language of American exceptionalism through absolutely every one of these speeches. But what was intriguing is as I was looking for that in, in Trump speeches, I started realizing, you know, he's saying this a little bit about the nation, but he's saying it a lot about himself, right? Everything about him is, I'm the greatest, I'm the smartest, I have the best words. I mean, you've heard all of these these uh, these uh, claims that he has, right? Um, nobody builds walls better than me. Uh, he had his, um, he had his, uh, uh, doctor, well, he wrote the note for his doctor. It's come out that he wrote the the note from his doctor that said that he like was the healthiest, healthiest president of all of them of all time <laughs> ever to be oh, elected to right. the presidency, right? <laughs> um, and he he talks about himself as this exceptional individual, which you know the apex of that is you know I alone can fix it. But so I started realizing, wow, this language is just everywhere, um, and so I just started recording it. This somehow catches on among many Republicans and disaffected independents. Why do you think that is? There's a lot of reasons. Um, but uh, one of the things that, you know, I've alluded to this already, but um, he's not, um, throughout the 2016 election, he's not there really for the Republicans. In fact, he, he is um, very willing to blame not only Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, he's just as willing to blame Mitt Romney. He's, he attacks uh, John McCain, right? He goes after the upper echelons of the Republican Party just as much as he goes after the, the, the Democrats. He's telling the American public, I don't, I, I'm not like any of these people, right? These people are corrupt. These people are problematic. In fact, um, if you remember his slogan of drain the swamp, um, he comes up with this. You would think that this was a, a feature of the entirety of his campaign, but he comes up with this in October, right? This is, this is the, the life of drain the swamp only had a month um, before the elections. This is in response to the Republicans who have jumped ship on him because of the Access Hollywood tapes. So what he's telling the American people is 
everybody's corrupt in Washington. And I know it because I've used that system. And that spoke to, I think, not only some disaffected Republicans and independents, but some Democrats as well. And sure enough, despite the Access Hollywood tape, which many people will remember is uh, a audio recording of him saying some pretty uh, disgusting things about women and uh, joking about sexual assault. Despite this, and despite some of uh, his allies jumping ship, as you say, he, well, he doesn't win the popular vote, but in the rather peculiar way in which we elect presidents in this country, Trump wins the Electoral College, and and now he's president. And then, you know, at this time, he's got a bit of a problem because he set up the idea that America is actually a mess, and he's not really even in the White House for very long when you start saying, hey, look, the tide is turning. And then you write in your book that within the first two years of his presidency, he's made a pretty dramatic shift to, I have made America great again. So there's this rhetorical shift, but not much evidence to back it up. But had he transcended the need for evidence at that point among his supporters? Uh, yeah, I think we write in the book that uh, the thing that Trump learned early on, and I think probably before, way before he ran for president, is that it doesn't much matter what's true, um, especially at the polling booths. What matters is what people think is true, right? And so he is willing to say what he thinks or to create a, a notion in people's brains and then, you know, it's interesting because throughout his presidency, the media as the news media, as they should, um, they fact checked everything he said and showed how many lies he said. And thousands uh, upon thousands. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. and nobody and his supporters weren't paying any attention. And so he creates a reality in their minds of an exceptional America, right? He talks about um, the stock market being at records highs every day after day after day. Um you know, but what he really focuses on doing is creating the notion of American exceptionalism. So he starts in his inaugural, doesn't in, invoke it at all. And then two years in, he's invoking it. He's talking about its back. But what he's really looking to do is to say that the United States is greater, not than any other country on earth, but than ever before. So what he wants to do is he wants to show you that it's not the United States relative to other countries. It's the United States or the United States under Trump relative to every president before him. And he'll put those words into other people's mouth. I talked to Orrin Hatch the other day, and he said I was the greatest president on the face of the planet. And I asked him, better than Reagan? Yes, sir. And I love him for it, right? Like what he's focused on is him, right? Himself. It's not about the nation. And this is the piece that we haven't really touched on through this talk, or I haven't um, mentioned, but it's important, is that Trump's notion of American exceptionalism, you alluded to this in the intro, is not about the nation, right? It's about Trump. I wonder if this is where things begin to go off the rails for Trump, for this exceptional me strategy, because people are going to weigh this idea, this thing that he's saying, that I have made America great again, 
with evidence from their own lives. Like maybe many of his supporters will not. And certainly there's a large section of America that isn't going to listen one way or another because they're they've already made up their minds on the other side. But, you know, party balances being what they are in recent American history, you can't win elections without, you know, independents and moderates and and people who are, you know, going to make up their own mind. And in, in your mind, is that where things sort of fell apart for him is that even though he could sway his supporters to believe this and maybe believe it more than ever, there was still a great deal of America that looked at that and weighed it against what they were seeing with their own two eyes. I, I definitely think that's a piece of it, right? But uh, if you remember back in, in 2020 at his State of the Union address, he he rolls out his fully-fledged um, exceptional me strategy, right? The nation is better than ever before. It's because of me and my policies, right? It's, it's full-fledged. And... Um, you know, this is the speech where Nancy Pelosi gets so ticked off that she rips his speech up behind him. This is the speech where the Republicans in the room were chanting USA, USA. And so this is, you know, this is February 2020. And then a pandemic hits. And what you really have to take into account is that the pandemic is actually Trump's really his first crisis. This is where his exceptional me strategy ran into a rock um, or a mountain, you know, a boulder, um, because he kept saying, we're doing this better than everybody else. And people could look around and go, you're out of your mind that we're doing better than everybody else. Right. So that I really think the, the pandemic itself is is the turning point for Donald Trump. You finished this book before Trump announced a run for president again, although it was widely assumed, I think, that he was likely to do so. Um, and you said earlier in our conversation, you know, that it was likely that he would run again under some sort of idea that America was great, and then it wasn't, and then Trump make it great again for a brief shining moment, and now it wasn't again. But that he could do it again, to, you know, make America great again, again, again. It, it's all a little bit dizzying. And it does seem today, though, that, that a lot of people in this party are ready to move on. That it's, it's certainly not a foregone conclusion for him. Um, much that it might have seemed to have been so, as you say, in January 2020, when he gives this speech and everybody's just rallied behind him. Is his use of the exceptional me narrative spent out at this point? Does he have room to continue to spend it? I mean, you're gonna, I mean, we're already seeing it at play. Um, and it's exactly what you said. Um, you know, the country was in dire straits. When I was in for, for, the, for those four years, your 401ks were never better. You know, the stock market was in record highs, although it's, you know, 10, you know, a thousand points higher than it was any time his, during his presidency, even at the lows during Biden. Again, the, the facts don't matter, right? But he's going to spin these things uh, time and again. And it's going to resonate with people who, who in their minds are thinking things like um, inflation, right? And gas prices. And wait, maybe he was right 
we were doing pretty good back then and I'm not feeling so good right now. Maybe he could bring us back to that. You know, what we argue in the book is that this is effective rhetoric because most of us don't have time um, to, to do all of our homework and to check on the fact checking, right? And we kind of go by the, our gut a lot of the time when we vote at the polls. And if he can, if he can gain some traction with the notion of, I mean, look at the world under Biden and look at the world, world under most of my administration, he might be able to convince some people that, uh, that he can make us exceptional again, again, again. But he's not alone in this, right? I mean, the, the campaign of Ron DeSantis, who many people see as the most likely person to be nominated by the Republican Party for the 2024 election, certainly right now, the greatest challenge to Trump getting a renomination. This this campaign released an advertisement recently in which a narrator says, and here I quote, although albeit without the very deep booming voice that this narrator has, on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. And and when I hear this, it, it's just so ham-handed that it sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit. But <laughs> sure. I, I imagine that you hear this and you see the evolution of the exceptional me strategy. Indeed. Yeah, no, I mean... You, what you see is is th- there's this old adage about, and I'm not sure the Republican Party is exactly what it was before, but it used to be that uh, every four years, Democrats want to fall in love and Republicans want to fall in line. And there is this this notion uh, or this this kind of tendency within the Republican Party that we band together and that's our strength. And... Uh, if this starts to resonate, this start this type of of uh, rhetoric, which has already resonated with Trump, as they're looking for somebody potentially to take over for him, um, yeah, I mean, this is the exceptional ma- me strategy, perhaps three point hmm. We got American exceptionalism as a bipartisan rhetorical strategy, in large part because for a confluence of a bunch of historical and you know cultural and psychological reasons it has worked for politicians in the United States for a very long time it it does appeal to voters on both sides of the aisle the exceptional me strategy worked for Donald Trump DeSantis apparently thinks it will work for him as well at what point do you think we will start seeing it or will we start seeing it among Democrats as well? That's a really good question. I hadn't really thought of that. It's, uh, you know, there's a there's a reason why I think uh, Republicans have attacked Democrats on patriotism for so long is because um, Democrats tend to be constructive patriots. They tend to be uh, patriots, you know, who are willing to... to to criticize their nation, right? Who's, who are willing to say, if we're going to be what we, if we're going to be the shining city on a hill, we've got some work to do, right? We have to, we have to improve ourselves. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, somebody comes along and, 
and uh, says, all right, Democrats, but what we need is to win elections. Um, so let's have some inspiring rhetoric um, that can bring over people uh, from the other side of the aisle. So I think it's going to be in that in that kind of soul searching of the Democratic Party for the next voice uh, of the party, you know, somebody who's not in their 70s reaching on their 80s uh, to lead the party uh, both morally um, and uh, politically. I think it's in that finding a creative uh, way of talking about American exceptionalism that doesn't doesn't mean cultural superiority, um, which it can mean, right? It uh, maybe a, maybe in the words of, or in the the model of Barack Obama, we're we're exceptional because we embrace our diversity and our multiculturalism, and the more we do that, the more we'll be a beacon for the rest of the world. Um, what's clear is that you're never going to see the rhetoric of America, or I, I, I don't want to say never, but it's unlikely we'll ever see a, um, an American political uh, system without American exceptionalism right at the center. Hmm. That's Jason Gilmore. He's an associate professor of communication at Utah State University and the co-author of Exceptional Me, how Donald Trump exploited the discourse of American exceptionalism. Jason Gilmore, thank you. Matthew, thanks so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.